0: Become part of Aussie culture and tradition, built up over the years from the pioneering days through into the legends of the Man from Snowy River, Clancy of the Overflow, the Jolly Swagman camped by the Billabong, through to Crocodile Dundee and the Home Handyman shows on TV sponsored by your local home handyman store. That the Aussie bloke is an individual who can handle anything and is therefore an individual who doesn't really need anyone. Is an individual who can do it himself. It would seem. Today I'd like to have, have us, uh, I'd like us to have a look at what Paul has to say in Philippians 1 and see what Paul is saying there, and find that Paul wouldn't make a very good man from Snowy River, as he didn't see himself as an individual. For me, as I grew up involved with the church, I understood the gospel in a very individualistic way. I would understand that a person makes an individual decision to follow Christ, that it's good for an individual Christian to have their own individual time of reading the Bible, to see what God is saying to them as an individual, and to bring to God their individual concerns to God in prayer. It was from passages like this morning's passage from Philippians 1 and others that I've had to recognise that the Apostle Paul in particular has the concept of a Christian of necessity, being part of a community called the Church. The great Apostle Paul starts this letter to the Philippians, like most of his letters, by thanking God. I read from chapter 1, verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So you see, Paul didn't see himself as an individual, an individual lone ranger type. He was thankful for the partners. As a bit of a shock to us blokes, he goes on to try and give the reason for this partnership in verses 7 and 8. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, for whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now I think it's pretty obvious when you find Paul talking about having affection for the Philippians that he was not an Aussie bloke. In fact, he was an Italian Jew living in Syria. Now I guess there could have been lots of reasons why he may have said that he felt affection for the Christians in Philippi. When he first visited the church, when he first visited the church in Philippi, it was a bit of a special event. Previously, he'd gone around visiting churches, primarily in the area known as Galatia at the time. We would now call it Turkey. Now, Paul, on his second trip in the area, he'd wanted to keep on going around to other parts that we would now call Turkey. But God stepped in. We don't know exactly how or why, but it's clear from Acts 16 that God had stopped him and then gave him a vision to go over to an area that I've heard children call Macedonia. We know it as Macedonia, or northern Greece, which is where he ended up, in the Roman colonial town of Philippi. Now, having God direct you like that doesn't happen very often. So I would have expected Paul to have this close affection with the Philippians because God directed him specifically to them. But no that isn't the reason Paul gives. Also Paul as a Roman, cita- a Roman citizen visiting a Roman colony like Philippi would have considered the Philippians to be special like anyone who has spent extended periods of time overseas would know that it's pretty special meeting an Aussie when you haven't seen an Aussie for ages. But this wasn't Paul's reason for feeling affection for the Philippians. Paul was the founding father of of the church in Philippi, having first visited the church when it was nothing but a few women meeting out in the paddocks for prayer and sharing the gospel with their first converts. But no, it was not any fatherly affection that Paul was feeling this time. Was it because they were some kind of super good people? Well, no, because in verse 6, Paul describes them as being a work in progress. God is still working on them, just like he is still working on all of us. Well the reason Paul gives for this affection is in verse 7. He says, "It's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart, for whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me." Paul's affection for the Philippian church came simply because they too had experienced God's grace. Of course, this is true for all Christians, isn't it? All Christians have experienced and acknowledged God's great gift to us in rescuing us through the death of Jesus. So Paul calls us partners in the gospel. That's no doubt what he meant in verse 6 by uh, God starting a good work in them. They turned to trust in Jesus and now God is working in them just like he's working in each of us. So it doesn't matter if you have no other reason or anything else in common or anything any special calling towards the rest of us. If you've experienced God's saving grace, you are our partners. Remember, though, what kind of partnership this is. It is, as verse 5 puts it, a partnership in the gospel. The idea is that this isn't just a business partnership. Instead, this is a partnership that has purposes in the spread of the gospel. So this again draws it right away from any kind of question of whether we have anything in common for us to be partners. As people who have experienced God's grace, we are partners in telling people about it. Not primarily as an opportunity to discuss hobbies we might have in common or the work that we have in common, but as a partnership in the gospel. It's the gospel that will focus our partnership, and that is what directs our conversation, our prayers, and our concerns for each other. We can see this further as Paul turns from thanking God for the Philippians to praying for them. In verses 9 to 11 he prays for them like this, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. When Paul considers someone a partner, he prays for them, because it is a partnership in the gospel. He prays about the very things that will be equipping them in the work of the gospel, a love that is not just the mushy affection we were thinking of when we read about Paul having affection for the Philippians, but a love that is smart enough to know what is the best thing to be said or done for the gospel. As the Brooks family goes through the horrible situation that they've faced these last few months, it's been great the way that people have known how to appropriately express their love for them. This has been done by praying for them and by leaving messages for them, sending cards, some have been able to visit them, and a whole host of other practical ways. Now I bet that talking to Greg and Angela will soon find out that there's been ways that we have not been enough uh, supportive enough. And of course, our concerns doesn't just end with that one family. There are many more people that we need to love. So it's extremely appropriate to pray for our partners in the gospel, to have a love that grows in knowledge and depth of insight so that we discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. Learning to love is an ongoing progress, an ongoing progress that we need to pray for. And as such love grows in us, we'll be better equipped for the gospel. The end result of such an equipping for the gospel will naturally be the spread of the gospel. And this spread of the gospel doesn't just happen when things are going the way we'd like them to. Paul had been unjustly chained up like an animal in prison because he had been preaching the gospel. Then in verse 12, Paul wants them to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the law have been encouraged to preach the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Although it looked bad that Paul was chained up in prison, he wants us to know that as partners in the gospel, that the very task that they are in partnership for is not stopped. It is the task of evangelism that's too big to be stopped by the Roman army. Even though they were the biggest and most powerful army known at the time, they could not stop the gospel. There's two reasons Paul gives for the gospel still being spread, even though he was chained up in prison. One was the opportunities provided to him because he was in prison. You can tell the gospel to the other people who were there. And the second reason is the fact that it has encouraged others to speak. Paul doesn't give too many details for how this second reason worked, except that Even in this, there are two groups of people who have been encouraged to spread the gospel more because he is in chains in prison. First group are preaching the gospel to somehow make it harder for Paul, like as if it makes his imprisonment worse. They have the right gospel, but their activity seems to have selfish motives. And the second group seems to have good and loving motives. Paul's response to this situation is remarkable in verse 18. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Paul's reaction is to rejoice that both groups of people are sharing the gospel. Note that Paul isn't talking about people who preach lies about Jesus or who twist the Bible to say things that aren't true. Elsewhere, Paul makes it very clear that such people need to be stopped. Instead, this is about motives. If I'm here with selfish motives, trying to make myself look good, yet I still preach the gospel, Paul is happy. Greg Bennett was originally going to preach this sermon, and one line I remember he gave about this was, You can't tell me that at some time some of the people we've had getting up to preach haven't been preaching with wrong motives. I hope I haven't dobbed Greg in for that, but what Greg was referring to was not that there was any false teaching being preached, but that some may have had selfish motives, perhaps trying to make themselves look good when they were preaching. The Apostle Paul says, It doesn't matter so long as the truth of the gospel is being proclaimed. Paul's priority is for the gospel to be proclaimed. Never stop yourself nor anyone else from preaching the gospel, even if they do have the wrong motives. Instead, encourage them to be faithful to what God's word says and pray that God will humble them gently. The plot thickens, though. Paul's priority is for the gospel to take effect in his partner's lives, and this is seen to be larger than life. Remember that we saw in verse 17 the people who are preaching the gospel out of wrong motives are somehow causing Paul's imprisonment to be worse. Now listen to what he says next from partway through verse 18. I'll continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that in, that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose, I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire, Um, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. The implication is that even if the people who are sharing the gospel for the wrong reason cause his death, Paul's concern will not even be for his own life. I've heard of some people who have been threatened or, you know, threatened to be killed. For preaching the gospel, stop preaching or we'll kill you. Has been the um, the threat of the um, persecutors. The preachers' reply has been, "Are you threatening me with heaven?" Similarly, Paul is quite happy if he dies because someone is preaching the gospel. Paul was not feeling suicidal. He just knew that telling people the gospel is more important than life itself. Paul comes to a conclusion to look forward to life, but the reason for looking forward to living on is because of his partnership in the gospel with the Philippians. Look at verses 24 to 26. It is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ will overflow on account of me. Paul seems to be so keen on the gospel taking hold in the lives of the Philippians that he is even prepared to put heaven on hold, so to speak, so that he can encourage the Philippians. When he says that he'll continue for their progress and joy in the faith, he's using the same word as he used back in verse 12 for advancing the gospel. Paul wants the gospel not just to be proclaimed, but to take hold in the lives of his partners. Is that what you want for your partners in the gospel? Let's first remind ourselves that we're not a bunch of spiritual individuals. Instead, you are partners simply by the fact that God has been good to you and to others. So you are partners with the rest of us, partners in the gospel, partners in telling others about God's great grace. You may have heard of the word fellowship. It's become a bit of a cliche in so many circles, both inside and outside the church. Well, the word has been translated here as partnership, but in older translations, it's translated as fellowship. Now, I've been in some places where they've talked about having fellowship when all that's happened is they've sat around gossiping. Gossiping is sin and is therefore the opposite of fellowship. Paul's understanding of fellowship is not sitting around talking about the football either. That may be great friendship on something that you have in common and therefore good. But it's not a partnership in the gospel, which is what Paul understands here as fellowship. Let's have our conversations reflecting that we have a partnership in something that's far greater than our interests or our jobs, but we have a partnership in the gospel. Of course, in reality, the pioneering Aussies that tries to take on the wild by himself will inevitably end up quite lonely. It is a comfort that we do have each other, and we can therefore thank God for the fact that we do have each other. Can I suggest that if you find it hard to pray for each other, that a great place to start is to thank God that we do have each other. Like for Paul, it will soon grow into prayer for each other. Start perhaps with the people in your Bible study group. Even if they have different hobbies to you, you have the gospel in common. Then try the wider church community. And don't forget the missionaries as our partners too. After all, Paul wasn't living in Philippi when he called them partners in the gospel. We can be thankful for what God is doing through the Lucans and the Applebys and the Parkers and Karen Laird and other partners that we have like that. As we pray for each other, we may soon become aware of the ministry that each of us has. It's been a great encouragement in praying for the Brooke family to be reminded by Greg and Angela of the opportunity they have been having in sharing about Jesus in so many different ways. Yet others here have had opportunities this week too. Let's encourage each other now over a cup of tea or coffee by using the opportunities to find out the ministries each of us have in sharing the gospel. How is the gospel going with your family? your workmates, or anywhere else for that matter. Your gospel opportunities may appear to have been missed, but let's not be discouraged. Instead, it will be a great opportunity to pray for each other during the week so that our love may grow in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. We'll pray now, but before I lead us, I'd like you just to stop and take a look around you at the people around you here in this building, so that you know who you'll be praying for, who we'll all be praying for. Okay. Father, we do thank you for the partners in the gospel that we have here. We thank you that we have such a great common ground of having experienced your grace to us through Jesus. We thank you for the opportunities that you have given each of us. We know that we may not have taken each of those opportunities as we should have and that we may not have shown your love as we should and for this we ask for your forgiveness. Father, we pray now for each other, the people who we've just noticed that we're sitting in this building with. Father, we pray that your gospel will continue to have an impact in their lives and that in you their love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that they may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God.